Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1000 Hours Outside. And you are in for a treat because Dr. John Deloney is here. Welcome. What's up? How are you? <laughs> so good. I have just loved, I read your books recently and I got, I have something to show you, but I feel like I'm a little on the fence about showing, but I'm doing it anyway. I'm going to do it. I was kind of like, maybe this is a bad idea. No such thing as bad ideas. Here we go. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! So I, have, I tell you, you what, I buy those. <laughs> I did, which I was like, it's, it's like the Dave Ramsey personality. Should I show that I have? I have all of them except for the Thanksgiving one because it was sold out. But these are the questions for humans. Uh, My the, kids love these. All love right, listen, them. The Thanksgiving ones are going to be in the mail today. I'm sending them to you. <laughs> okay, okay. So we have these, and actually, I was doing a book launch team. And in the team is like an online thing. And I would be asking the questions from these different. And everybody said, I have those. I got those for stocking stuffers. So just absolutely fantastic. Our kids' favorite thing is when we have questions to ask them at dinner. So I just want to throw that out there that the questions for human cards, we have them. I keep them in my purse. They've really been life enhancing. You're amazing. You are putting out amazing things in the world. And I don't know if Dave would approve that I have every single set, but... It is what I'm, it is. <laughs> I, I, I assure you he would approve. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it helps with relationships. One day um, we can, uh, I'll fill you in on how those cards came to be. It's quite a funny story, but no, that's All fantastic. Right. Thanks for being in the gang. Dude. That's awesome. They're awesome and they're great. They're great for holiday gifts. So I recently read actually both of your books and I know you have another one too, but the most recent ones, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, A Not-So-Complicated Approach to Relationships, Mental Health and Wellness. And then the most recent one, Building a Non-Anxious Life. And I tell you what, these books touch me. I, re I read a lot of books about getting kids outside. So this was a little bit of a diversion and it was such a good diversion because I needed to read these books. I came away with so much just for my own life and for our family. So just well done. They're so fantastic. They're so meaningful. I would love to talk about some of the topics that are in there. I've got pages and pages and pages of notes. <laughs> Let's do it. I love what you talk about how you're talking about this crazy time in your life and you have all these things that you say, like my life is a blur. My job never ended. I was on a merry-go-round. I was like living with a taser. It felt like a hurricane. And then you said this and you said it several times. You said, my story is your story and your story is my story and everyone is struggling. Hmm. And then you said that several times, everyone is struggling. And it's an interesting thing because I think as humans, we don't tend to think that. We tend to think we're the only ones that are struggling. How did you get to that point to know and to be able to make that statement? No, it's everyone. Um, man, it's, I think you read the books closer than I did. Um, I, I appreciate that. Here's the deal. I was a dean of students. I think the university I was working at the time when I was first, the things I wrote about in Own Your Past, I think it had about 5,000 students. And one of the things I was over was housing. So you have students who are 100% scholarship students who are Pell Grant students. Their families have nothing. And then we had other students whose parents flew in on private jets and wouldn't even fill out the financial aid paperwork. They just wrote a check for all four years. And so every student mm -hmm. was dealing with isolation, loneliness, increased medication. I would go to the hospitals and have to call parents and say, hey, your kid's on life support. And it might be a kid from an underrepresented population that had nothing. It might be a kid whose parents hopped on their private jet or their friend's private jet to get down and see their kid in the hospital. And I started to realize there's no group that's being affected more than the other. 
the numbers would say that some groups are being affected more like this group, you know, may die by suicide more. This group may be addicted more, but overall, everybody's melting down. And then mm-hmm. as I experienced it, dude, here's just me looking in the mirror, being honest. My parents have been married. I don't even know the number 50 something years. And I'm a big six foot two, 195 pound Texas male. Like I, I have every possible advantage on planet earth. My parents are still married. I'm married to a brilliant, smart, kind. No, she's not very kind. She's kind of mean, but like beautiful <laughs> wife. My kids are healthy. I have every single thing laid out. How in the world am I falling apart too? Mm. That became the, I, I came last in that picture. Like, oh dude, if it's me too, man, then we got a problem because mm-hmm. I can create stories for everybody else, but man. And then I had some childhood abuse issues. I had some stuff that I had to deal with too, that I hadn't thought through at the time, but it's everybody. And then as I started working with police departments, doing death notifications in the middle of the night, it was this real resounding, none of us get out of this thing alive. And so I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much money you don't have. I don't care what lottery you won in life or didn't, man, it's coming for us all. And it was a looking around going, oh, we're all in this thing. Mm-hmm. You've had an eclectic life. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. All of these different experiences. I do love that it all combines here where you're helping people and you're taking these experiences that you have and the views that you've had, because I think that most people don't get as wide of a swath of a view of the world as some do. And so then you get to come in and say, look, you know, I have seen the spectrum of this. And one of the things I love about your books is you're so specific. You do such a fantastic job of putting out all the specifics. So here's this paragraph. You're trying to make your marriage work. You're trying to hold things together during the pandemic. You're trying to make sense of wild economic news fires, someone you love passed away, someone labeled you with anxiety, they diagnosed your kid with autism, the bank foreclosed your home, you're angry all the time, people treat you less than because of how you look, you don't believe in your work anymore, you were horrifically abused and years later you still can't breathe, it feels like the structure of your life is crumbling. And all throughout your books, you bring in these specifics that people would say, yes, yes, that is actually what I'm dealing with. And that comes from being in a place where you have rubbed shoulders with so many different people and what you're doing now, people are calling in, they're asking questions. By the way, my editor hates that because <laughs> oh, really? my editor is always like, um, well, that paragraph you just read was probably eight times that long. And, and she was always <laughs> like, you can't include everybody. And it's like, I know, but, and here's, the, can I just say one thing about like a list like that? Yeah. We have such a segmented bifurcated, chopped up in tiny little slivers culture. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, our culture is a bunch of tiny little slivers, teeny tiny little tribes. And the tribes are identified by negative labels, negative identity. I'm part of the house got burned down community. I'm part of the kid with autism community. I'm part of the ADHD diagnostic community. I'm part of the late ADHD. I didn't even know that what I'm trying to say is, yeah, you're right. In every conversation I've ever had with somebody, whether they're holding a loved one's hand that just passed away, whether they have a child who's passed away in the next room, whether they have flunked out of school, whether I'm telling them, this is my job for 20 years. Hey, you just cheated on this exam. You're out of the university. You can't be here anymore. Whatever the thing is, we've always landed. My parents kicked me out of my home and disowned me because of this particular thing about me. We've always landed on one question. and It's the same question. What are we going to do now? And so what I want people to feel like is you're not sitting up there by yourself, man. Yeah, Your life falling apart may look a little different than somebody else's, but everybody's life feels like the Lego pieces are hard to hold on to. And that actually means we have way more in common than we do otherwise. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, it's very validating when you read everyone is struggling, everyone is struggling. And your story, it weaves through you rubbing shoulders with all of these different people. And I thought one of the things that you said that was so interesting when you're talking about loneliness and that people are calling into your show and they're asking you all of these personal things. And you're saying, well, why are you asking me this? <laughs> you say, I was stunned that people would actually call a stranger and open up about their sex lives, addictions, special needs children, family tragedies, and mental health diagnosis. And they say, I've got no one else to call. Hmm. Wow. It was harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. So this friendship piece is something that you talk quite a bit about in both books, the loneliness and having no one else to call. You say things like, I mean, it's worded so well, we're drowning in shallow water. What advice do you give? Because I know you start off by talking about how it's so easy when we're kids and in our college or around people. And I agree with this. Then you step out into the adult world and you don't have the skill sets. You don't even know how to create friendships when it's not just built in around you. So what advice do you give to people? I know loneliness is such a big topic when they're trying to build relationships. Yeah, I, you you nailed in a very important part of it. And I, I've watched, <laughs> I've talked to thousands of business executives, like at a business conference that want to like learn how to crush it and dominate the market. And I'm telling them, hey, y'all are all going to, y'all are going to slowly kill yourselves with loneliness. And I've watched their shoulders drop when I paint this picture. Yeah. In the garden, the teacher puts masking tape on the floor and sits you in Redbird Row and then the Bluebird Row and then Blackbird Row. And starting in kindergarten, all the way through elementary school to middle school, you know, you're in choir and you're on the football team and you don't have anybody. And so that nobody's hanging out. And then the kids who have black eyeliner listen to like metal music. That was me. Like that crew, like everybody gets a gang and then you go to college and you get a gang or you go to the army and you get a gang or military, or you go to community college and you have a weird little gang, which is amazing. And then you graduate and walk across the stage or you go straight to the marketplace. And we don't realize that we walk across that stage and take our first job to go sell pipe fittings. It is you versus everybody now. And if you make a pipe fitting sale, it's because she didn't and you just took food off her plate. And so she's coming for you. And we don't have a psychology. In countries where there's mandatory military service after you graduate, even they get a second shot at or a post-graduation shot at community development. We don't. We don't. We are sent out into the world. And so what do we do? We hang on to those high school friendships with those long text threads full of emojis and hilarious memes or our college friends. Or we go to sorority, get togethers again once a year that turns into once every five years, which turns into once every 10 years. We make these weird shallow friendships at our church or whatever. And you wake up and you're 35 and you are married to somebody that you're kind of buddies with and you got nobody. Mm -hmm. And the problem is we can get up and go to work. You can crush your workout. You can do, read all the parenting books and do all the right parenting things. But your body is screaming, we're not okay, we're not safe, we're not safe, we're not safe, because your body knows you can only be safe with a tribe, with a gang, with a group mm -hmm. of people, not 5,000 miles away from you, five minutes away from you. This is physiology and neuroscience as much as it is spiritual, as much as it is just humanity, is our bodies were not designed to do life alone, and we've created these insanely isolated lives. I heard one famous physician who I just love said we are lonelying ourselves to death. Long tail suicide is what they call it. We're not taking pills or dying by a gunshot. We are Netflixing and having one more drink and one more drink and 
scrolling ourselves literally to an early grave. And so what's the only option? Go be weird. Go first. Understand that if I don't have a group of friends, I am choosing to die miserable and early. So I'm going to reject those choices and I'm going to start inviting people over and it will be weird. It'll be weird. And you'll make some great new friends. Great new friends. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It literally says in the book, say hello. Say hi. (laughs) This is where we're at. And it needs to be said. And I do think it's like you come out of those childhood years and you do not have the skill sets. And I love that you give all sorts of practical advice. And you're honest. Making new friends. I read this to my husband last night. Making new friends as an adult is the absolute worst. It's the worst. The worst. (laughs) It's the worst. It's terrible. You say, I'm a social guy and I hate it. My wife assures me that I'm super awkward. <laughs> I am. L- hey, listen, um, I don't I don't know the rating on your show, but I was creating a I am. I'm creating a questions for humans, um, sex and intimacy deck for couples. And some of the people who read the early drafts were like, are you insane? You think I would ask my wife or my husband this? And I was like, what? So I went home and I told my wife, I said, Hey, people are telling me that the, the like the people who are editing these are like this is too awkward or weird. I've been asking these at dinner parties for like twenty years, and she goes, <laughs> and she goes, my wife goes, yeah, you've been making dinner weird for a long time. And it's like I didn't know you don't ask about orgasms at dinner. It's a, I just was wondering, and so she's like, yeah, you're not normal. But that hey, that's where the questions for humans came from. A buddy of mine was on the board at Apple and Google, and I asked him, hey, what book have you not read yet. And he goes, well, I'm listening to your stupid stuff. So I got rid of all my screens and now me and my kids just stare at each other in the living room. And I said, well, why don't you talk to them? And he goes, okay, I'll just talk to them. (laughs) And then I started laughing and I said, oh, you don't know how. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized, oh, this isn't a moral issue. We're not all dying of character defects. We literally overnight lost a skill. Mm -hmm. We don't know how. I don't know how to talk to the person at Starbucks and dude, uh, I had to meet somebody at a movie theater and be like, I think you're pretty. Um, would you like my number? I was, that's the only way we could do it. And now if I do that, they call the police, right? It's called stalking. <laughs> and so that happened in a decade or less. And mm-hmm. so I think we have to revert back to some sort of weirdness that is actually life-giving. Mm-hmm. And these questions are fantastic. They are a huge hit in our family. We will not do the sex and intimacy ones at the dinner table, but <laughs> we have all well, these other free. ones. That's and we know in just a statement of we have a thousand friends on Facebook, but no one's there to move our couch. And really, really intentional ways to look at things. Can I tell you underneath that? Yeah. I thought it was inward out where we're not asking out. Like we've got to get out and go do these things. And mm-hmm. people kept across the country for a year were saying like, yeah, it's just too weird. And I kept trying to pull that apart. Why? And I think I wrote about it in the book, but oh my gosh, we think we're a burden. Yeah. We think that by asking our neighbor for a cup of sugar or a ride, or can you help me move these boxes? Instead of understanding that we are giving them one of the greatest gifts somebody can give someone, which is purpose and connection and support and love and meaning and something to talk about. Oh my gosh, her house smells so weird. We're giving them a gift. (laughs) Instead, we deny them of that and we just call the movers and we pay for it on a credit card we don't have the money or we call uber to give us a ride to the airport do i hate being asked to help my friends move god almighty i would rather set my hair on fire literally than help somebody move with nice hair too so that's a big deal (laughs) i spent dozens of seconds on this morning but when (laughs) i do help somebody move and i'm hot and sweaty at the end of the day and they get pizza and some cheap drinks i feel incredible like i've done something good today 
And my friends and I have some funny stories we'll tell. So the whole community comes together, but it lands on this place where we have to stop thinking of ourselves as a burden, that other people's lives are better when we're not around because that's simply not true. Mm. My friend, Christine Bailey wrote this book called The Kindred Life. And she says, hospitality is also showing up to be fed. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that changed my life. And this is in your book. I had this written down. When you're talking about, look, we're taking away the opportunity for other people to help us. And I thought that was beautiful. Another paragraph, I just love how you have all these examples. It's funny. It's so entertaining. So you say everyone was lonely. And then you say poor people, rich people, extroverted people, introverted people, religious people, atheists, married people, single people, divorced people, people having affairs, people with deep meaning in their work, people who are radically disengaged at work, all of the Enneagram numbers, all of the Myers-Briggs letters and all the strength finder labels, everyone I talk with are struggling. So it's just phenomenal, entertaining writing. I've got like smiley faces and hearts all over the book and all over my notes, driving home that piece that you're not the only one. People are struggling with this. And so go be awkward. And you don't get a pass. Oh, I took it. I took an online quiz. I'm an introvert or I'm an ISTJ. So I just do life without people or I'm an Enneagram one. So I just like to like, my love language is rules and I don't love other people or I'm an eight. And so I just like to yell at people and make them feel small. Like you don't get an excuse. Mm-hmm. It's your body. That's dying. That's like mm-hmm. saying like I can smoke because I'm a, any doctor will just cut you off right there and be like, no, you just can't smoke. Right. Yeah. But I can smoke because I, nope, no, you just can't smoke. Loneliness is the same way. So good. And so much more information about it in both books. Fantastic to read even about how it affects your body, which I did not like your body notices. And it was so good. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp h-e-l-p.com slash 1000 hours. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember to sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to 
factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. I have a question about, I want to know where this came from. So we're talking about people that are calling in, they're asking you questions, they don't have anyone else to talk to you. And you had in building a non-anxious life, you say, the first time I ever took a call on live radio was in front of millions and millions of people on the second largest radio program in the country. And I had no experience in radio, zero. I didn't know how to speak concisely, how to come in and out of commercial breaks, any of it. I was totally exposed and I completely tanked my first call. How in the world did that happen? How did you end up there? (laughs) So I'm an academic introverted nerd. I like reading books and I like hanging out with the same friends. And I'm hoping that one day a famous punk rock band will call me and ask me to play guitar. Like that's kind of been my trajectory. And as you mentioned earlier, I say yes to everything. So if someone's like, hey, we're doing a SWAT training exercise, you want to be the bad guy? I'm like, yep. Hey, we're going on a long bike ride with a bunch of old men. You want to go? Yep. So that's always been a thing for me. Like they always say yes, because you never know where you're going to end up. And I was given a speech to a thousand new students and their parents. And it was in a time in my life when my life was falling apart. And so I was super brutally honest and it was pretty funny. And one of the people in the audience, she was dropping her daughter off and she was Dave Ramsey's executive vice president. And she said, I'm going to hire that guy. And so I got hired and they asked me, you want to quit everything, you know, and come be a a YouTuber and a radio show host. And I was like, that sounds kind of fun. And (laughs) yes. So I said yes. And there was an 18 month ramp up plan to teach me how radio works and how the business works. And I am a data nerd. I got two PhDs. So I'm a nerd. Like I love the data and how it works and how's the system work. So they're like, hey, it's going to take us a year and a half to two years to get you up to speed. And Dave Ramsey, the Ramsey show is the second largest radio show in the country. So I was like, okay. So we had a little, they called it radio school where they would set up fake callers. I would pretend for like 30 minutes during the morning or something like that. So that's what I had. And I joined the company January 28th of 2020. And then we had the month of February and then March, the world imploded in March of 2020. And so just a few months in, Dave has a hilarious line where he said, Hey, we hired this guy and he's pointing me in a meeting. He goes, we hired that guy to help hurting people and everybody's hurting. So we're going to figure it out on the air. And I remember thinking, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. (laughs) So um, I was there, I think six months and just putting along, learning how stuff works. And then all of a sudden it was, we're going to figure it out. So my first real live, we are in this to win it call was in front of, I think 21 million people or 20 million people. And I tanked it. I remember the woman asked, Hey, I'm hearing this stuff about COVID. Should I bring my daughter home? And I had, this is what it felt like. It felt like a thousand (laughs) years of silence. And then I said, well, how are, how are you feeling about it? And I, was, I just remember going, God, you moron. It was terrible. It was so bad. And then Dave, because he's like, like being able to learn radio live next to that guy is like learning how to play guitar on stage next to Eddie Van Halen. Like he just, he's, he's one of the goats, right? And so he swooped in and saved the call and helped me out. But it was real like, oh, this thing's live. We can figure it out. And we figured it out. But it was cool to ask a bunch of questions that, people who do radio for a living never bother to ask because they've been doing it for so long. And one of them was, Oh my gosh, your mom has cancer. Call your friends or dude, your husband cheated on you. Call your, your girlfriend and then be able to say, 
oh, I don't, ha- I don't have any. I don't have a friend yeah. I can tell this to. And that was rattling to me. I knew we were lonely. I didn't yeah. know how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah. Now you do. What a story. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's wild. Wow. Okay. What famous punk rock band would you want to call you? All of them. All of them. <laughs> what do you have? You got Gibson guitars? Is that what you have? That's kind of my thing. I, yeah. I love Gibsons, but I, I do love me some Jacksons too. And some, mm-hmm. some... Uh, we're we're a fan of Taylors over here. I, I can yes, I like Taylors. Those are great American made guitars. They're fantastic. Dave Matthews plays one, they're good. Yeah, so maybe someday you're joining the famous punk rap band. I love that. Someday. So okay, so we talk about loneliness and sometimes we're in these situations that are really hard. The situation of hopping on live radio in front of millions of people is hard, these awkward situations. And then you talk about, and I think this is one of the things that's sometimes really hard with friendships is things happen. They happen and there's grief and there's loss and we don't know how to come alongside. It feels awkward or we're going to do the wrong thing. And you have such a touching story in building a non-anxious life about when your wife was going through miscarriage and you had a friend that showed up and literally said nothing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us that story really gives a good, I think, measure a good wisdom on how to handle situations when we find ourselves wanting to help our friends but don't know what to do yeah i mean i fell apart and so the way i solve problems was to go get information go get data and go talk to people that's just how i've always solved problems is find somebody smarter than me and and see if they can explain it to me and so i ended up at another university um, where i was working with a smaller group of students and um, i was a dean of students of a law school at a big research school and i started taking they gave every, if you worked there, they gave you a free graduate school class as just a, mm-hmm. as a work perk every semester. So I started taking graduate classes in counseling, even though I'm, I was already done with graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I slowly started nickel and diming my way to uh, another counseling, uh, to a counseling PhD. Well, my wife had miscarriage number one and then miscarriage number two. And lucky for her, I was a crisis expert. That's what I did. I showed up when the worst things happen to people, things yeah. that are almost unimaginable. That's just what I did, whether it was with the university or with the police department or with other therapists. That's just showing up in the middle of the night to people's houses. And so I started trying to solve my wife's pain and really numb my own pain with all the right answers. What's dopamine doing and what's the MTHFR gene doing, MFTHR gene, whatever it is. Like, like what is happening in your body physiologically? Then there was a, she got pregnant again. And it was an eptopic pregnancy mm-hmm. and it ruptured and she's an old West Texas farm girl and she's tough as nails. And she just sat in our living room and said, this is not happening. I refuse to lose another baby. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about that, that means she was, she almost bled out in our home. Yeah. And finally she dragged herself to the car and drove herself to the ER. And then she called me on the way and said, Hey, uh, and she was screaming into the phone. I could barely understand what she was saying. And I was in line to pick up our son. Um, we had a we had a toddler son at the time, and so I took my son to meet her at the at the ER. And I didn't really understand what was happening. It was just loud, and I said, "I'll be there." I know that sounds kind of callous or weird, but I was always going to the ER to sit with people, and so mm-hmm. it was her. And I didn't really understand what was happening, but I'll be there. And when I got there, I looked across the room at the head of the OBGYN there at the research hospital, and I looked in her eyes, and I knew I'd shown up to enough emergency situations. I squeezed my son's hand. And in my mind, I thought, this is the last time I see my wife alive. And I, I knew it from the West, the way her look was. And then she started running down the hall, pushing. This is the head of the OBGYN department, was running down the hall, pushing my wife in this giant oversized wheelchair. And she, my wife just slumped over. So I texted somebody to come get my son, and they showed up. And I guess they texted somebody who texted somebody. And then a f- close friend of mine, he's a rancher and a children's author. And um, he is maniacal 
about getting kids outside. He's an, mm-hmm. also a middle school writing teacher and he showed up. He is a tough as nails, West Texas cowboy boots, hat, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he walked into this tiny, what felt like 10 by 10 room where I was waiting to see what happened to my wife while she was in surgery. And he walked in and sat by me and said nothing, no words. And then it was 30 minutes, an hour. I, 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 in my head, we were there for a couple hours. It may have been a little bit shorter than that. He just sat there and I just nodded to him when he walked in. And then the nurse, I mean, the doctor finally came in and said, your wife's going to be okay. We lost a baby, but your wife's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I look over and my buddy starts weeping. And he grabbed my shoe. I had my leg crossed and he grabbed my shoe and squeezed the top of my shoe. And he was crying tears that I didn't have yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm a Christian guy. I'm a religious guy. And I remember thinking, this was the closest to Jesus I've ever been. And that dude said no words. He didn't come here and preach at me. He didn't come here and lecture me. He was just showed up in the scariest moment of my life. And that has resonated with me as I've traveled the country and met with people behind closed doors, them saying, I don't know what to say. My mom's got cancer. I don't know what to say. And I just say, just say nothing. Get some tacos and just show up. Hey, i got some friends at work. Things are kind of weird. I don't know what to say. Just show up. And I think we show up and as a culture. We're so uncomfortable with silence. And as individuals, we're so uncomfortable with the importance and power of our presence. That we think we only have value if we have utility. If we do something, let me clean your kitchen. Let me sweep your floors. Let me bring you meals. Just show up. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to coming up with a game plan for how to make friends, just call them and say, hey, we're watching the fight. Come over. Hey, I've got a can, 5,000 tons of green beans. You're helping. Come over. And if they say no, that's because they chose to say no. There's not something wrong with you. Or maybe if 20 people say no, maybe something is wrong with you. And you should probably ask, like, why don't anybody want to hang out with me? And they might say, you have terrible breath. Are you really rude? Are you swear too much? Or your jokes aren't funny? Whatever the thing, you're super racist, whatever the thing is. But I think underneath it all, put away any sort of excuse. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do this. Just show up. And that actually transformed how I showed up to sit with people whose kids had passed away. Mm. I used to show up with a bunch of answers and I, what, what are you going to say in that moment? Yeah. And by the way, the neuroscience tells me they won't remember what you said. They'll just remember. Mm-hmm. And that old line is true. They'll remember how you made them feel. And yeah. so I started showing up and hugging people and I would say mm-hmm. very, very little. And they would call me months or weeks later and say, you saved my life. And I'll be, I didn't say, <laughs> I actually, I didn't say a word. Right. And so that's the story, but the sentiment is just show up, just show up. Yeah. And somebody will tell you, hey, I'm really hungry. And you can go, cool, I'll go get some food for us. And then you can get out in your car and be like, oh, so awkward in there. Cool. Just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Wow. John, these books are so meaningful and so practical, so practical for where we're at today. I wanted to share, practically speaking, uh, (laughs) I got to the end of building a non-anxious life. I want to show you actually what else is on my nightstand right now. Oh, yeah. This is the survival guide for coaching youth basketball. So I've got your books on my nightstand (laughs) and I've got this because there was no one to coach my daughter's like little girls team. Mm -hmm. And so I stepped in to do it. And I I don't think I've ever played sports. I mean, I might have had like a swim coach when I was seven, but this is like completely out of my purview. And I just I laughed my way through your story at the end of this. You also coach basketball. Can you tell us the story about the zone defense? Oh, dear, it's awful. I so related. <laughs> so going back to one of my life rules is just say yes. I was mm-hmm. in Los Angeles trying to be an actor, and I came home to visit my mom. She was sick, and I was in my high school parking lot. You know how lame I was? 
I was that guy. I was driving <laughs> through the parking lot just to relive the good old days. I was 21. Is there any lamer guy than that guy? <laughs> and I ran into my old track coach, who is now the athletic director of this giant district in Houston. And I was like, I want to be a coach someday. And he started laughing and I started laughing. And then two or three days later, he's like, hey, I had a coach quit. You want to be a teacher, a high school teacher and a basketball coach? And I was like, yeah, no. And he goes, it pays X, Y, and Z. And I was like, I'm in. And I quit. I, <laughs> I didn't go back to Los Angeles. I stayed in Houston and became a high school basketball. That's how that happened. What a pay. I mean, that is so bizarre. Sometimes our lives are so bizarre like that. Like the one person is in your thing that you're giving this talk and your whole life changes. What a story. But here's the deal. Brene Brown says, whatever you go looking for in the world, you're sure to find it. Mm -hmm. And I'm always looking for the next. Are you kidding me? Adventure. <laughs> and one thing, and this is a whole other podcast, but my parents gave me this insane, wild, unrealistic, madhouse understanding that you can probably figure something. You can probably figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I don't. I didn't have a uh, like. Oh, you want to go do that? That sounds stupid, but you'll probably figure it out. Like, and so we made fun of each other, and then we were like, "Go get them." And so, anyway, mm -hmm. long story short, I end up. I'm a. I, I ran track in college for a little bit, and so track was my thing. But you had to coach a second sport, so I was coaching basketball. I didn't know anything <laughs> about basketball, and I got put with the most amazing athletes. Like these young men were so great, and I'm 21. They're like 14 or 15, mm -hmm. and we're just crushing these teams across Houston. And I got pretty arrogant real fast <laughs> and we're enter into a game and all of a sudden we're getting blown out, blown out. And by the way, I was yelling and screaming. I treated every game like it was a final four game. And I was like coaching the <laughs> sophomore basketball team. All these other coaches were like half hung over with scruff and like gym shorts. And I'm in a suit. I wore suits and <laughs> I am pacing the floor and yelling and screaming. And literally I'm not kidding. I knew two plays. I knew one inbounds play. And I knew if you hit the guy, he got to shoot free throws. How lame that is. And if you shot from really far away behind this line, they gave you three points. <laughs> and that's about what I knew. So I call timeout and I'm yelling and screaming at the team, run the offense, blah, blah. And finally one kid, one kid. It's so great. He just goes, coach, it's not going to work. And <laughs> Jenny, I lost my mind on the sideline. I'm like, what? It, man, it's not going to work. Run. This. And he goes, coach. And I'll never forget this. He goes, they're running a zone. And I was like, what do you mean they're running a zone? And he goes, coach, they're running a zone. We're running a man to man offense. And this is in a timeout, like 30 seconds. All this is happening so fast. And I finally, like, I just dropped my shoulders. And I was a 21 year old kid. I was a loudmouth idiot. And I start laughing. I was like, Eddie, what's a zone? <laughs> and the team, like their eyes got huge and they were like, what? And I was like, what's a zone? And the player goes, coach, they're not moving. They're guarding an area. And I go, what? That's not basketball. And then the referee blows the whistle and he's like, let's go. And I just remember laughing. And I was like, go get them, guys. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, but right when we got back, I went into the coaches off the head coach's office. Like, guys, you got to teach me what a zone is. And they taught me. And I sat at my, I sat at my, I had a basset hound. It was me and my hound dog. I'd order a pizza or make spaghetti because I was just a bachelor and I would get a beer and I'd pour it and she would, my dog would have some and some pizza or spaghetti. And I had little army men and I would do the basketball plays with plastic army men until I finally learned it. And then we won the district championship the next year. So there we go. But it was a, it was those boys were some of the most amazing teachers for me. Uh, they were incredible. I loved my time. doing. But you can just imagine that their mouths would drop when you would say, 
what's that? Well, their eyes just got huge. Like, you're the one guy that's supposed to know a zone. Like, I don't know what that is, guys. Um, I mean, make no mistake. By Monday at practice, I knew what it was. But, dude, I, they caught me, man. And here's the thing. We all know. We all know when our wives, our husbands, our bosses, our politicians, we all know. Oh, you don't know. And we're in that world now where we just lie and make up stuff or we like try to cover it up. The greatest gift you can give to the people around you is, I don't know, but I'm going to go figure it out. Not some lie or some half truth or some, well, you know, it's actually their fault. Just say, I don't know. I could have yelled at those kids and said, hey, y'all getting your butts kicked. Y'all need to do it harder. Mm -hmm. The honest thing was, I don't know, guys, just give it your best effort and uh, <laughs> best of luck to you, boys. <laughs> it was, you know, and we still we laughed about it all year. But anyway, that's that story. Yeah, that's a good story. And it was so relatable because I'm right there. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops' price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code OUTSIDE120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code OUTSIDE120 at goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash OUTSIDE120 code OUTSIDE120. All right. You talk about sleep. It's always annoying. <laughs> I was like, oh, why does this have to be true? <laughs> I, hey, trust me. I've got so many things I want to do every day. And the last mm -hmm. thing I want to do is stop it and lay down. Yeah. It was the great Matthew Walker who really him and his team have done some pioneering work to show, Hey, we thought we'd get really anxious. We have anxiety or PTSD and that mm -hmm. keeps us from sleeping. And what they found is actually the opposite. 
actually we stop sleeping over a period of time for a number of reasons because our brain's spinning up because we don't stop to think we never go out in nature um we don't exercise we don't have good relationships our brains are always spinning and then we don't sleep and if we don't sleep for long enough then we start getting anxious then we get these other things and it's important just to say this as directly as possible if you're lonely if you owe somebody else money so that if you got fired they take your home away if you're in an abusive relationship, if your kids and you, your relationships are, are not symbiotic, if y'all aren't connected, your brain would be failing you if it let you go into deep, restful sleep because it's at war. It's trying to keep you alive. And so often we try to solve the sleep issue. We drug ourselves. We dope ourselves up. We have all these rituals and routines when really our body's working perfectly. It's telling you, hey, you're not safe. If you get fired tomorrow, you lose your car, you lose your house, you lose all your food. And in our current economic system, that's quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. Your body says for millennia, that has not been the way we do this. Mm -hmm. If your body knows, hey, you're all you've got. You've got to watch the kids earn a living, check the front door, the back door, the side door, do with the food, keep everybody safe. It can't let you sleep. Because it, it loves you too much to let you do that. And so often we try to solve the symptom. We try to solve the anxiety. We try to solve the sleep. And really the issues are way upstream. I think most of our bodies are working way better than we actually think they are. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you got a lot of information in here about anxiety and our physical health. I love this. The best workout program. Anything you will do consistently every single day for the rest of your life. You're talking about food. The secret is do something. Anything over and over again. And a lot of information from The Comfort Crisis, huge fan of that book, and Michael Easter. So a lot of interesting things in there. Let's just hit parenting for a quick bit because a lot of our listeners are parents and we've got two issues. One, we have childhoods that are disconnected from nature. And two, we are wrapped up in our kids' successes. And they, like you said, they become this trophy can I just tell you, I, I would hug you just for saying those things out loud if we were in person. Like those two things you just said are so important. God, I'm glad you're speaking about this stuff. So this is where we're at, right? We're disengaged. And you, I tell you what, if you want to be encouraged, people should read your stories about your own childhood. I loved it. You say, okay, okay, wait, let me, I'm going to divert for one second because I have this part bolded. You say, I loved this paragraph. For many years, my grandmother had been telling me to turn off the TV or video games and go outside, to play with my friends or play dominoes with her, to walk or ride my bike instead of drive, to stop eating junk, to have adventures, to read and exercise, to play a musical instrument, to pray and be part of a faith community. She's been telling me and showing me. How did they know? How did they all know? Because it, they did it for all of human history until like 40 years ago. And they know because that's what they had. And they went through World War One and World War Two, and they went through depressions, and they went through inc in insane uh, lack of prenatal care. I mean, they went through everything, and they really lined it up. Here's how you live. Go outside. Have friends. Be with people. Eat in moderation. Laugh until it hurts. If you're going to have a drink, don't do it every day. But when you do, make sure you got people with you so y'all can be extra silly, right? It was just this life. Yeah. And man, we have just grown up. We've created an outsourced culture where mm -hmm. everybody told us that we were wrong. I remember so distinctly. It was um, 
an interview with a group of grandmothers. It was about margarine. And they had grown up on these farms and made their own butter for years. And my grandmother has the, she passed away, but she had the most hilarious stories about chickens. They had chickens. That's what they ate. And so they had to go wring the chicken's neck and get the chicken. And my grandmother and my granddad, they died and they lived an amazing wild life, but they ended up in a very, very small two-bedroom house in a suburb of Houston, right by the highway. And my grandmother grew up on a chicken farm in the middle of hot Texas. And one of the last meals I remember her serving me for breakfast, we had grape nuts out of a box and then we had spam for lunch. And now the irony that her grandson did everything he could to get some acreage to move out to the woods to get chickens so his kids would have to be outside all the time because what she worked for so long ended up being a lie. It was an illusion. Yeah, I mean, I'll stop there, but I could talk all day about it. But those yeah. things are so important. Yeah, it's like we fell into a black hole That's right. for 40 years, 30 years. Oh, 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 let me, yeah. Yeah, let me say this about the margarine. I'm sorry, I just remembered. I remember this group of grandmothers saying, we knew this was wrong. We looked at this bucket of margarine and we knew it wasn't healthy, but they kept telling us that the experts said we were hurting our kids by giving them butter. And so we made the switch to this tub of chemicals. And now, of course, I don't know anybody that has margarine anymore, but it's been this shift, but these grandmothers knew. They knew, right? And so I think in the book, I write about going to do some brain stuff with this brain institute and it coming out being like, wow, my grandmother told me almost everything on this list, if not everything on that list. What a weird world, man. Mm -hmm. So you have gone back. You have done the full circle. You got the chickens. You're getting your kids outside. What about this piece where we hang our hats on the accomplishments of our kids? How do we move away from that? I... Yeah, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about that non-empirically. So I don't have a bunch of data, uh, a bunch of studies, but I think it's an outgrowth of our lack of purpose in an increasingly technological world. So if you have for all of human history, if your dad was a cobbler, built shoes, and then he taught you how to build shoes and then taught you how to build shoes. Well, now I go in and I fill out Word documents and I edit them for a company for some shareholders to make money. So we've pulled ourselves further and further and further apart from this magical thing called purpose. It's a connection to business in and of itself is um, an amazing, wonderful thing. If the goal of business is to help somebody solve problems, mm -hmm. if the goal of business is to help me get rich, that collapses on itself every time. And so if the goal of my business whether I run a porta potty company or I'm a roofer or I am like you, you're teaching people how to be parents in a, in a world gone mad. All that's amazing, but it's about serving somebody downstream. Even somebody like a fast food restaurant, the goal is to help you get some food quickly at a good price. Like we're trying to serve a customer, right? So I think that's number one. We have a generation that overnight, our grandparents came home from World War II, they just started working really hard. And then they told their kids, hey, the secret is not the purpose, not the rebuilding. It's the benefits, the money. So go get that. That's number one. And then I think we're also lonely. So we don't have anybody to do life with. So the people we do life with relationally is our kids. And I just shudder when parents would tell me when I was in the university, when they would tell me, oh, my daughter's my best friend. I just love her. She's my best friend. I used to say to myself, that poor girl. Because she's she doesn't have the strength to prop up an adult relationship. Oh, my son's my best friend. God help that little boy. 
I don't care if he's six foot two and 18 years old and 220 pounds. He does not have the neurological wiring to hold up the emotional regulation of the adults in his life. He can't do it. That's not his job. His job is to be a kid. And so I think over time, parents have lost connection with purpose. They've lost connection with friendship. And so they've got these little mini-me's in their house. And I think we have a third thing. Let me throw a third thing in there. Yeah. Um, Man, we all have this weird thing where we wish we could go back and do our childhoods over again. We have this anti-aging culture and almost our kids are our ability to go back in time. And so we have this fantasy that like, if I just worked out harder, I would have made like, we're all uncle Rico, like from Napoleon dynamite. Like if I just worked out harder, I would have made the team. No, you wouldn't have, no, you wouldn't have, but it's cool to think that. And so what do we do? We make our kids work harder for us because they're going to make the team that we didn't make. They're going to date the person that we didn't date. And so really our kids over time become our proxy for our self-worth out in the world. And they simply cannot hold that up. And so you look at the spiraling out of control, depression, and anxiety rates. I do think social media, it's unambiguous. The data is clear that social media will destroy young kids, period. End of story. I'll even go as far to say if your kid has social media before the age of 18, I think that history will judge a parent harshly for that. And I know that's hard to say and mean to say, but that's it's just me. I have to be honest. But equally, if not worse, I think what's tragic to the kids of our current generation is they have become the center of their household. The parents ask them, where do you want to go to school? What do you want to eat? Where do you want to live? What do your friends want to do? And kids are not designed. They cannot hold up the weight of a household. That's a parent's Mm -hmm. job to say, we're going to eat here. I don't like that place. Well, it looks like you're going to be hungry tonight. It's not our job to cater to our kids because it does solve a problem in the short term, but it creates children who are so anxious because their bodies have been holding up the universe for so long. And so um, they need parents who are not raged out all the time, who are secure and attached and able to say things like no, or able to say things like, I know your feelings are big on this issue. And I totally get that you're frustrated with me, but my job is to keep you safe. My job is to love you. And so you're going to go outside and play. You can turn the screens off. Mm -hmm. You've had your 30 minutes of screen time for the week. Cool. Go outside. There we go. You're going to go outside. It's so boring out there. Cool. There's a shovel. Dig a hole. Right? Yep. Yeah. My midwife says someday our kids are going to come back and they're going to ask us why. Yes. Why didn't you place more boundaries? Yeah. Why did I lose my childhood? The whole thing. Yeah. And kids are already starting to do that. You start to see it in the kids that are early 20s and they've been the guinea pig in this situation. And also there's this thought of how are we presenting adulthood? It really changed my life. I read a book by Linda Flanagan called Take Back the Game. And she said, we're presenting adulthood like it's this huge bore that all you do is sit on the sidelines in the, you know, she says the fetid expanse, the heat, you know, and cheer. That's all you do. She's like, no, get a life so that kids can have something to look forward to. So just so good. We didn't even get into the bricks, John, (laughs) the bricks and the things that we carry and our anxiety and all these things. We talked about it a little bit, but phenomenal books. I mean, touch me right where I was at, information that I could dive into right today, changes that I can make right today, encouragement, things that I could grasp onto funny, phenomenal writing. I highly recommend both. And I know these these aren't even your only books, but Building a Non-Anxious Life, the newest one, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, phenomenal. And they, they're so cohesive. I mean, one book to the next, 2022 to 2023. I was like, whoa, that's impressive. <laughs> I didn't even mean for that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. John, we always end our, I thought about asking a question from one of the stacks, but people will get mad at me because I always ask the same question at the end 
of each podcast. And the question is, what is a favorite memory from your childhood that was outside? Oh, man. It's kind of weird. Is that okay? Yeah, weird's good. Um, so my dad was a homicide detective. He was a policeman growing up. And I mean, they paid policemen like 14,000 bucks a year. So we didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. And my dad's side hustle, one of his police officer friends was a taxidermist on the side. So one of their specialties was belts and hat bands. So if you were a, a cowboy hat, the, the hat band. And of course, I was in Texas. And so the best hat band material was snakes. And so my dad and I would head out into the woods in North Houston and go snake hunting. And I have these phenomenal memories, A, of my dad taking me on these wild adventures into the woods and poisonous snakes were the best. Being very young and my dad, I have this one vivid memory of my dad saying, okay, there's one right underneath this rock. You pull up the rock and then get out of the way. And I remember even then not thinking cognitively, but feeling like he trusted me because what we were doing was kind of dangerous, but kind of awesome. And I know this isn't popular with everybody, so feel free to edit this out. But I've continued that tradition. I, li I live out in the outside of the city on land. My kids are always outside in the woods. And I'm a big hunter, too. And I'm, I'm really, it's important to me that I know where my food came from. But my son and I, he's 13 now, we went on a hunting adventure last weekend. And I remember thinking of that story like, oh, he's going to tell this story at my funeral the same way I'm going to tell that story at my dad's funeral. So yeah. those are some of the just outdoor adventures with my dad catching stuff is just just such an important part of my life. I mean, you think like so, you never know, like someday my kid's going to be, you know, on this national radio thing. And what's he going to talk about when I told him to pick up the stone yeah. a, and move and move quick because that snakes underneath there. What confidence that would instill. John, it's been so fantastic. Thank you for your time. Thank you for these wonderful books and for these questions, questions. I mean, we have questions forever <laughs> to ask our kids in the car. You can destroy it. It's the size of a deck of cards. It's so perfect. You literally can keep it in your purse, in your backpack. It's been so life-giving to our family. Thank you so much. Hey, you are a saint, number one. Number two, thank you, thank you, thank you for spreading the message that you spread. And number three, never buy one of those decks again. Now you know a guy. Shoot me an email and we'll hook you up with whatever you need, okay? I will do. Thank you, John. You're a saint. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. Please quickly leave a five-star review for the show. It's a tremendous help for securing new guests. And make sure you're following the show so that you are notified of new episodes when they are released. We have some amazing guests in store for 2024. Get your kids outside this year with the 1000 Hours Outside Challenge. Find free tracker sheets at 1000hoursoutside.com slash trackers and find answers to all of your questions at 1000hoursoutside.com slash blog slash all the things. If you're looking for an inspiring read in 2024, my new book, Until the Streetlights Come On, came out recently. It's an Amazon bestseller and has fantastic reviews. Buy it wherever you buy your books or see if you can snag a copy from the library. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, 
Life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.